0: Hi, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today we will be covering the beginnings of social reform movements within the United States. This would include the temperance movement, abolition, women's suffrage, Dorothea Dix and mental illness, Horace Mann with education reforms, and, and maybe a little bit more. With us, as always, we have Jean Anzanakis, our resident history teacher, and she will be taking us through this.
1: So before we continue to move along into the 1850s and the events that will lead up to the Civil War, it's important to rewind the clock a bit and discuss some social changes that helped to shape the history of the United States. To understand how much of a game changer the Second Great Awakening was for American society, we have to discuss the religious beliefs of colonial America. The first English settlers were made up of what we refer to as English dissenters. When talking about New England colonies, we are, we are, of course, referring to the pilgrims and the Puritans. The Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England. They felt it had held on to too many Roman Catholic traditions. Puritans were followers of a man by the name of John Calvin, calvinists believed in something known as predestination it's the idea that god has already chosen who has been saved it was predetermined god is an all-knowing figure as a result of predestination one's behavior had to consistently prove that you were part of the elect or the chosen so you kind of have to you know, out-holy everyone else. New England settlers typically came in families. They placed high importance on education, especially being able to read the Bible. Harvard, for example, was established mostly for the training of ministers and church leaders, that there would always be an abundance of those people readily available to lead. Church attendance was mandatory. Only male church members had a say in local governments or were allowed to attend town meetings. Their strict religious beliefs make it a bit easier to kind of wrap your head around some of the severe punishments the Puritans especially were known for. You know, for example, um forcing adulterers to wear a scarlet letter A. The Salem Witch Trials, you might remember. They would brand the hand with the letter T for a thief, with the letter B for burglary, F for forgery, and my own personal favorite, the ducking stool.
0: Hey, hang out one second. The ducking stool, I've never heard of, but this stuff sounds a little bit harsh. You want to go into a little bit more detail and and certainly let us know what the ducking stool is?
1: So the ducking stool, just try to kind of picture in your mind this wooden seat, maybe attached to a lever, and typically this was a punishment for women. If a woman was caught, you know, trying to eavesdrop on a town meeting or was questioning her husband too much she would be sentenced to as many times in the ducking stool as it would take to cool off her temper. So she would be kind of forced to sit in this chair and they would dunk her into the local river or pond or maybe even a well, let's say, right? And so that was the ducking stool. You know, very thankful I was not alive at that time. It would have been tough times for me with a ducking stool, but that's what the ducking stool was. So, the second great awakening began in the 1790s and by the 1820s had spread throughout the northern states. During this time you have these camp-style revival meetings, you know, picture these great big tents and these preachers, you know, giving these very passionate sermons to this large group of people you know, preaching the notion that people who have sinned could be saved, one's fate was not predetermined. It led to mass gatherings and converts. So this went against the beliefs of Calvinism and Puritanism. With Puritanism, there was no gray area. You were saved or you weren't. And then you had to prove your piety by outdoing everyone else with your religious zeal. This revolutionary notion that one through good behavior and you know good moral standing could determine their own fate was a game changer. In the 1830s, transcendentalism, the belief in an ideal spiritual state that goes beyond the basic senses, began to gain popularity. Ralph Waldo Emerson is considered the father of transcendentalism. Transcendentalists wanted utopian social change. And when you hear that word utopian, it's basically a, a perfect society. These new ideas led to what becomes known as the age of reform. The goal of these reform movements was to create a society where humanitarianism and social justice prevailed. Now, If you consider the status of American society, this posed a conflict to a number of institutions and conditions within society. The major reform movements that gained steam during this time are the temperance, women's suffrage, and abolitionist movements as well as the movements to improve conditions for the mentally ill and to establish free appropriate public education. So the first topic I'll discuss is the movement to improve conditions for those with mental illness. And the pioneer for that movement is a woman by the name of Dorothea Dix. She helped to found 30 hospitals that were dedicated to treating those with mental illness even today there is such a stigma around mental illness how we treat it how we discuss it imagine how difficult it was to talk about mental illness in the 1800s you were considered mad and locked away and they threw away the key nobody looked at you nobody cared Her parents both suffered from depression, and there is evidence that her father was an alcoholic. Her difficult early years, and really her own bout with depression, set her on a course to improve the conditions of those in similar circumstances. She was sent to live with her grandmother, who was fairly well off, and her grandmother's wealth allowed her to do the work that she ended up doing. She was educated and became a teacher. She wrote a teaching manual of sorts that was called Conversations on Common Things or Guide to Knowledge with Questions. It was very popular at the time and you you can actually still purchase a copy on Amazon. And if you don't want to purchase your own copy, um, There is a digital copy on archive.gov that you can read. It's a very quick read, and if you have the time, I recommend it. It's written in a style of conversation between a mother and her daughter. They discuss a variety of topics. The basic principles of American government, salt mines, how you can get salt from seawater, porcelain, how it's made, where it originated from, spices and where they come from around the world. So Dorothea Dix worked as a nanny for William Ellery Channing, who was a transcendentalist poet and through him met people like Ralph Waldo Emerson. So all of these ideas, her struggle with her own mental illness and depression. She was encouraged by these people to go to England and to rest and recover and get better. And while she's in England, she has the opportunity to meet a number of reformers like Elizabeth Fry and Samuel Tuke, whose family established York Retreat Hospital in England. The hospital was really a pioneer in the field of mental health. At York Retreat Hospital, Things like shackles, chains, physical punishment, starvation, and all the other usual treatments for those with mental illness were taken away and replaced with an approach that the Took family called the moral treatment. Patients were treated with kindness. The rooms were kept clean. They had access to beautiful grounds and were, you know, encouraged to take walks, read books. You know, all things that you would today say sounds like it makes sense to do, right? But at that time, it was very revolutionary. The hospitals, you know, they did have the typical safety precautions in place, but it was done in a way which made the facility feel more like a home and less like a prison. So when Dorothea Dix returns back home to Massachusetts, she took a teaching position in East Cambridge Jail. It was there that she saw for herself the horrible conditions. You know, It's one thing to read about something, but when you're there in the trenches yourself, seeing it with your own eyes, it makes a world of difference. It led her to try to visit as many institutions and jails as she was allowed into. Those visits led her to conclude that the conditions of the jail in East Cambridge were not unique. She took notes with detailed descriptions of the conditions that people were living in. Just to paint you a picture, the mentally ill were kept in cages, starved, naked, beaten, kept in the same cells with violent criminals. In the report she submitted to the the Massachusetts legislature, it detailed the horrors of what she saw. In the report, she talks of a woman kept in a cage wearing filthy rags covered in her own human waste, which she would eat just as quickly as she would have you know, the food off of a tray given to her for lunch. Her body was so disfigured because she would peel off her own skin. She argued that the current conditions were no place for the insane as there was no way they could be helped. And it was also a disservice to the criminals in the jail as they were forced to listen to the screams of those with mental illness. If you're looking for resources to teach this topic, I highly recommend going to disabilitymuseum.org. The site has a ton of primary source material and great lesson plan ideas for educators. As a woman in the mid-1800s, there were limits to what Dorothea Dix was allowed to do. With the help of male allies within the legislative branch, a bill called the Bill for the Benefit of the Indignant, Insane passed both houses of Congress in 1854. It was unfortunately vetoed by President Franklin Pierce. He felt that social welfare programs were not the responsibility of the federal government, but that of state governments. The goal of the bill was to set aside millions of acres of federal land to build hospitals for the insane and to allow the sale of those lands for use of groups. And this is a direct quote, just so you can understand the verbiage of the time, for groups such as the blind, deaf, and dumb. So just that wording shows the lack of understanding and the lack of kindness and compassion that society had in just talking about individuals with disabilities or mental illness. The proceeds of those sales would then go to help states maintain those facilities. So while the federal government didn't take this on, many individual states did through the use of state tax dollars, and 30 hospitals were established for the treatment of mentally ill. The headway society has made in treating mental illness has been remarkable. It all started with Dorothea Dix and her tireless advocacy, I reached out to some people that I know who work in the mental health field. Many are psychologists in hospitals. Some are in jails. A few of the sentiments they felt that I should kind of hammer home on is the wide variety of therapies that exist now that teach people with mental illness and their loved ones with how to navigate life living with a mental illness the explosion of research into various medications that have allowed people to live within society that otherwise would have had to be hospitalized. Patients are no longer locked in their rooms and restrained with things like straitjackets. Things like bed nets have been outlawed since the 1990s. There is something called lock seclusion that's still used. So if a patient is out of control and needs to be restrained and kept away from others, they are brought into a padded room, but only for an hour at a time. And they have to be given bathroom breaks, water. They're under constant supervision. So the days of of locking people away and throwing away the key, those days are long gone, thankfully. Staff in the facilities are trained to de-escalate situations when a patient does become violent. When individuals with mental illness do commit crimes, they are kept in separate units. Guards are given mental health training. A variety of therapies are utilized. When treating with, you know, people with mental illness, one of the things that the psychologists that I spoke to consistently said was that it's always better to come from a place of compassion for individuals who do need to be hospitalized. The goal is to be able to discharge patients. I asked these mental health professionals what the biggest obstacles were for individuals with mental illness and for mental health professionals. The answers across the board were the same. The need for better follow-up care. Once patients are discharged, there aren't services to encourage patients to remain in treatment. The services that do exist are limited in how many people they can actually reach. On a professional level, it often leads to burnout. One mental health professional I spoke to discussed how they had treated somebody for over six months. They got the patient to the point where they were able to leave the hospital, be able to live in the community with support, but people often fall through the cracks and it can be disheartening as a mental health professional when you see that same patient come back into the hospital within a few weeks and be just as worse off as they were when they first came six months, or a year ago. When I asked what these mental health professionals needed to better serve the mentally ill, the answer was also the same. More funding, more awareness to help break down the stigmas of mental illness that still exist. Mental illness doesn't always mean dangerous, and those with mental illness deserve our compassion and to be treated with respect, Remember, this is someone's child, someone's sibling, a mother or a father. A second reform movement that we're going to discuss today is Horace Mann and education reform. In 1840, Horace Mann gave a lecture on the importance of education and libraries. And this is a direct quote. In it, he stated, Unless a man knows that there is something more to be known His inference is, of course, that he knows everything. He went on to say in that same speech, to know how much there is that we do not know is one of the most valuable parts of our attainments. He argued that children need to learn about other places, different cultures, different societies, because when they don't, They tend to think that every place is just like where they live. And if it isn't the same, it's wrong. You know, people don't understand that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. So he believed that the mere existence of a library taught people that there was more to learn, each of the books creating a multitude of lessons yet to be learned. Horace Mann helped to establish what became known as common schools. He believed education should be for all children, regardless of the socioeconomic status that they were born into. Children at this point, you know, it was a privilege to be educated and education was a privilege for the wealthy few. For most, especially children of farmers, schooling was sporadic at best. Typically, breaks were given so that children could work on the farms at harvest time. Schools in the United States, when they were first created, were those one-room schoolhouses with one, child, uh, one teacher teaching a variety of grade levels at the same time. You know, think Little House on the Prairie and Miss Beetle, or my own personal favorite, Miss Eliza Jane Wilder. And if you haven't seen Little House on the Prairie, watch it. Typically, you had school teachers who were teenage girls with an eighth grade education. What Horace Mann hoped to do was to set an educational norm he advocated for teacher training programs that would teach a basic proficiency in reading, writing, arithmetic, history, and geography, just to ensure that all children were getting the same basics. For students in the seeing and hearing impaired communities, they would not be helped by this movement. It would take other pioneers and it and innovators to advocate for the education of what we, you know, sometimes refer to as exceptional learners or learners with disabilities. It would take as recently as 1975 for the Individuals with Disabilities Act, which is often referred to as IDEA, to be passed for children with disabilities in order to provide them with a free, appropriate public education as well. So it's important to understand that all of these things that start in the 1830s and 1840s are very much still connected to today and there's still more work to be done. The next uh, movement I wanna discuss is the temperance movement. The temperance movement was a social and religious campaign against the consumption of alcohol that began in the early 1800s. Most people typically, you know, connect this with prohibition, which is what it eventually led to, but after quite some time, it's important to understand that drinking alcohol was safer than drinking water in the early years of the United States as many water sources were contaminated. There was no understanding of, you know, water you know, purification and bacteria. People just knew that when they drank the water, it made them sick. They thought it was unhealthy. As a result, most people drank alcohol instead. By the 1830s, you know, there are a lot of statistics that show, on average, Americans were drinking around seven gallons of alcohol a year. That's a lot of booze, all right? The Women's Christian Temperance Union, otherwise known as the WCTU, was created in 1873 and actually still exists today. You can go to their website, wctu.org, and learn more about them. Its most famous president was a woman by the name of Frances Willard, and she advocated for a do-anything policy. Its members and chapters could support the movements of their choice. Many, of course, chose to advocate for temperance. Women were seen as children under the eyes of the law. Women didn't have the right to vote and lacked the political influence needed. So they had to start on a grassroots level creating local chapters, and slowly and steadily gaining support. The Prohibition Party established in 1869 worked to have a constitutional amendment passed that would ban the creation, consumption, and sale of alcohol. A little further back in 1840, something known as the Washington Movement was created by a group of six men who were battling alcoholism, The theory was that if they could get together regularly, discuss their problems, and encourage each other not to drink, they could stop drinking. This was the precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA. The Anti-Saloon League was established in 1893 and worked to promote the temperance movement through various forms of propaganda, like stories, poems, songs, you know basic flyers describing the goals of the movement one of my my favorite leaders of the temperance movement was a woman by the name of Carrie Nation. She was a member of the WCTU in Kansas, but she felt as though you know their approach wasn't heavy handed enough. And so Carrie Nation was known for going into local saloons with a hatchet and smashing the bottles in the bar, you know, trying to rid society of this evil. There was something known as Arthur's Ten Nights in a Barroom. It was a book written in 1854. And it was, you know, in essence, the Uncle Tom's cabin of the temperance movement. In the book, the tavern is depicted did as the ruination of society, drinking shops corrupt men's bodies and souls women's believe, you know women believed that their male children were not safe. The book was turned into a play and it was used to promote temperance. The temperance movement would would not gain steam until the progressive era and really World War one that they would reach their goal with the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1919. The victory of the temperance movement would be short-lived as it was overturned by the 21st Amendment in 1921, but we'll get more into that in a later podcast on the progressive era and that time period.
0: Hey, gosh, there's a lot to cover here, and we have some time constraints because we like to keep these under half hour. I think it's best if we continue this in a part two where we can tackle the women's suffrage and the abolitionists. So we'll continue this podcast with a part two for our social reform movement. Stay tuned and look for that podcast to come out shortly. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.